Well, we continue our summer in the Psalms, and we come this morning to Psalm 51. Um, you can find some space to take notes on page 5 in your bulletin if you wish, but I invite you to keep uh, Psalm 51 open in front of you, either in your bulletin or your Bible, however you read your Bible, electronically or otherwise. Um, Psalm 51, I've been dreading this one. Um, mainly because it's so convicting, and uh, but also because it's it's so huge. <laughs> it, it, it's not that it's long; it's just massive in its weight and um, importance. So uh, I just want you to know right now that you'll be thankful that I'm not going to say all that needs to be said about repentance today, and I'm not going to comment on every verse and phrase in Psalm 51. In fact, I'll probably spend more time on the first half, the first nine verses, uh, than I will the second half, so don't get nervous. Um, When we get to verse 10, it'll go a little quicker, Uh, but let's pray because we need help to preach and hear. Father, would you come by your spirit and in the power and grace of Jesus and open our eyes, um, open our ears to see, to hear your word. Um, uh, Would you (laughs) comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable um, with these words? And I pray that with trembling and fear, because I'm afraid I might be the one that needs to be afflicted. But you love us, and uh, you love us enough uh, not to leave us as we are, but to pursue us, um, to chase after us, um, even through this psalm. So we ask that you would come, love us well, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, two weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 34, uh, where David said to us, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So I'm wondering, since that time, has God been convicting you of any relational sins? We talked about those that Sunday. Uh, has he convicted you of the way that um, you treat others with your words or um, whether you, how you talk to them or about them? Um, has he convicted you of relational sin in the sense of, um, have you been pursuing peace with one another, with others? Last week, we looked at Psalm 42, where David said, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul after God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. We ask the question, do I crave Christ? Do I really? Is Christ my greatest craving? We looked uh, at Jeremiah 2.13, which defines sin as 
forsaking God, the spring of living waters, and turning and investing our time, our energy, our resources, our hearts into digging wells that hold no water. Um, and he calls that idolatry. So I ask you, as I ask myself, has the Spirit shown you the people and places you've been using to satisfy the cravings of your heart? Has he been uncovering the wells into which you've been dipping the bucket of your heart looking for life? Jesus said that all the commands of God could be summed up in two. You know them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, or as Jesus further clarified that. Love one another as I have loved you. So, so what do you do? when God exposes your failure to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? What do you do when God exposes your unwillingness to love your neighbor as Christ has loved you? What do you do when your me-first heart glares back at you in the mirror of God's word? I believe one of the reasons we don't like to read the Bible is not because it's hard to understand, but because of what we do understand because it's a mirror that shows us our sin. And I'd rather not think about that. Thank you very much. But we forget that the Bible is also a reflection of the one who forgives sin. Um, so, so my question this morning is, after you have sinned and you see it, how do you respond to it? Because that's where David is King David is in Psalm 51. Um, as the, the title tells us, and if you know the story, I won't go into it, he had committed two major sins, I guess you could say. I'm, I'm sure there were others along the way, but he uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of one of his mighty men, one of his best friends and best warriors, uh, Uriah is his name. Um, he took her for himself while Uriah was out fighting for the kingdom. Well, when it became uh, apparent that she was with child, he tried various ways to get it to look like it was Uriah's child. Brought him home. Hey, I'm going to give you a little R&R. Hang out with your wife, Uriah being the man of character that he was, refused to be with his wife. Slept on the doormat outside. Um, how, could I, how could I enjoy uh, the pleasures of life while my men are out fighting? Um, David, frustrated, decided to send him back into battle with a note to Joab, the commander of the army, says, Put Uriah and some men out on the front line. Pull back at a certain time so that Joab is exposed and so he can be killed. And that is what happened. So he was complicit in the murder of one of his best friends. And then he married Bathsheba, took her as his wife uh, so that it would not be obvious uh, that the child was uh, sinfully conceived. Hmm. 
So David responds, after nine months at least of not confessing this sin, uh, he responds to the prophet Nathan who came and told him the story, you remember, about the rich man who had all kinds of sheep and cattle, but who stole a lamb from the poor man who only had one. In fact, that lamb was like a pet to the poor man. And so in order to have a feast for some guests, the rich man stole the poor man's lamb. David was outraged. He should be put to death. And Nathan looked him in the eye and said, you're the man. And David was convicted of his sin. I have sinned against God. And Nathan said to him, and the Lord has forgiven your sin. Now, that's the story behind this. And then at some point, Psalm 51 is David's prayer of repentance um, to God. Psalm 32 is another one of those. I would encourage you to look at it sometime. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, now, Jimmy, I have not committed uh, adultery or murder. Um, I've, I've never killed anyone, and I've never uh, slept with anyone's spouse. Um, me neither. But Jesus said to the Pharisees, who had done neither of those things, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Um, then he says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so Jesus drills down to the heart level so that now, outwardly moral people are also guilty as charged. Um, James, the half-brother of Jesus, picked up on that theme later in his letter, and he talked about, he said, what, what's causing the quarrels and fights among you? Is it not that you have desires in you that are not being uh, fulfilled? So you kill and you covet Basically, he's saying, you murder and you lust. But he doesn't mean necessarily that they're physically doing those things. He's talking about what's going on in their heart. And then he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And so James uh, takes all of those sins, whether it's anger and lust or others, and he puts it all up into the category of committing adultery against God, our husband. And he's echoing the whole Old Testament. Um, the prophets would say, uh, that God's people had, quote-unquote, whored after other gods. So, so I, can't, I can't get out of this by saying, well, David really, he'd send two of the big ones. I've never done that. So, um, 
I went to, I once preached at a church many years ago on those passages that Jesus talked about, and I, I said, I am an adulterer and a murderer. One of the older men came up to me after the service, one of the elders of the church, and he said, now, Jimmy, um, I heard what you said, but you're not really an adulterer, are you? You're not really a murderer, are you? And by that, he meant you haven't actually committed those sins. And me and my youthful desire to kind of, I was like, well, no, 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 no. I mean, I'm not, but wait a minute. But Jesus, I did this in front of him. But yeah, well, according to Jesus, I am. I'm a murderer. I'm an adulterer. Um, so what do we do when God convicts us of those sins or any sin? What, how do we respond? Uh, this morning, two, two things. Repentant prayer pleads for reconciliation with God, and repentant prayer pleads for transformation by God. Um, so let's, let's look at uh, David's prayer of repentance uh, and, and let it be a model for us of how we respond when God convicts us of our sin, whether they be outward obvious sins or whether they be sins of the heart um, that no one else sees. David understands that holy people can't be in relationship with, I mean, sinful people can't be in a relationship with a holy God. And so reconciliation is what he's looking for as he prays this prayer. Um, John Piper uses the illustration that uh, if he has somehow sinned against his wife and uh, she goes downstairs, huffs off and is angry with him, and goes to the kitchen and is watching, washing ditch, dishes, which anger gets a lot of things clean, doesn't it? Um, she's washing dishes and he comes into the kitchen and her back is turned to him with the cold shoulder, and, and he, he says, honey, I'm sorry. I, please forgive me. This is, what I, this is how I sinned against you. It was wrong of me. Um, he says, you know, what I'm looking for then is not merely forgiveness. Forgiveness is a means to another end. What I really want is her hug. What I want is her hug. What I want is her embrace. What I want is reconciliation. I want our relationship back. Forgiveness is the way I get there, but what I ultimately want is to be restored to loving, unhindered relationship with my wife. And, and it's the same, that, same thing that David is trying to do with God. He's not just trying to have his guilt assuaged. He wants God. He's a man after God's own heart. So when I'm aware of who I am before God and, and who God is before me, I will plead for rec reconciliation with God through God. And that's what we're going to talk about for a minute. What does this pleading for rec reconciliation look like? Three things. This kind of repentant prayer uh, has three parts. First, I remember God's love. That's going to be verses 1 and 2. Then I recognize my sin, that's 3 through 6. And then I rest or rely on God's provision, that's 7 through 9. 
First of all, David pleads for reconciliation by remembering God's love. Now, you might think, well, you know, you got to get right to the confession part, right to recognizing your sin. But David starts with remembering God's love. He says, have mercy on me, O God. So he assumes that God can do that. But he says, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy or compassion. There's something about God that he knows that allows him to even beg for mercy. That God is full of steadfast love and is abundant in mercy. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson said, David is appealing to God's covenant love. That word steadfast love, the Hebrew word is hesed. It's all over the Old Testament referring to God's obligating himself to his people with a covenant promise. I will love you. I will love my people. So why, why start there? Why start there? Uh, in the 17th century, Puritan pastor Walter Marshall explained it this way. He said, Godly sorrow for sin is produced in you by believing the forgiving grace of God. You're not likely to be sorry for grieving God with your sins while you consider him your enemy. You'll never grieve over your sin if you only see God as one who takes great pleasure in your ever, everlasting destruction. You have to believe in God's forgiving and accepting grace if you are ever going to sincerely confess your sins. If you want to freely confess your sins, first believe the gospel, he says. Believe that God is faithful and just to forgive your sins through Christ. And I mentioned earlier, Paul says in Romans 2, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What will make you want to come clean before God? It'll be the rich, lavish, loving kindness of God's heart that shed the blood of his son to make you clean. So we must not only be convicted of our sin, but we must be convinced of his commitment to love us and forgive us and be reconciled to us. Repentance is the other side of faith. When you trust that he loves you and, you will, and will forgive you, then you will trust him with all the deep, dark secrets of your heart. When you trust that he's the only one who can do something about him, about those, you'll trust him with them. So we plead for reconciliation first by remembering God's love, but then by recognizing our sin. He says, I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. I know them, I see them, I recognize them quickly. We, we need to recognize sin for what it really is. He, he uses several words that are very important. Transgressions, he uses in verse 1 and 3. <clears throat> this is a, a self-asserting violation of a standard or a crossing of a boundary. Uh, picture a raised fist to God as you cross the line. Or, or parents, picture that child, and some of you have that child, who as they are reaching to do the thing you've just told them not to do, they're looking right at your face. That's transgression. Iniquity, he uses three times, verses 2, 5, and 9. Iniquity is a twistedness or a distorting. 
Uh, we've taken hearts that were designed to love and serve God and others first, a you-first heart, and we've turned that thing into a me-first heart. We've twisted it. Sin, he uses five times, verses 2, 3, 4, 5, and 9. That one is the one that means to miss the mark, to fall short. So picture uh, shooting at a bullseye with an arrow or a gun. And it's not that it just misses on the target, but it actually falls short of the whole thing. Or if you're, you're like me and you're going to do one of those chin-up bars, it's, it's trying to jump up there to grab it and you just can't get it. You fall short. Paul says, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And then David wraps all of those up by saying in verse 4, that I have done what is evil in your sight. So recognize what sin really is, then recognize who is responsible for the sin. He says, my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin, I have sinned, and I have done what is evil. The repentant heart takes personal responsibility for its personal rebellion against God. And then David recognizes what is the root of sin. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying that his mother sinned by conceiving him. He's saying that I was born a sinner. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. What he's getting at is that we sin because we're sinners. It's our nature. It's uh, the difference between branch sins. These are all the sins that are obvious that we see out there, but the root sin is the sin beneath the sin. The pride and the unbelief that's the root of my anger, my lust, my boasting, my gossip, my greed my disobeying my parents. And then he recognizes who has been wronged by his sin. Verse 4, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And he's reflecting what Nathan the prophet said to him. And Nathan was quoting God as he said these words. He says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord, and done what is evil in his sight. By this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. That means to despise with contempt. He recognizes ultimately who has been wronged by his sin, and that's God. It's not to say that David didn't sin, didn't sin against Bathsheba or Uriah or that David didn't recognize that. That's not the point. The point is that David's greatest defense was against God who made Bathsheba, Bathsheba and Uriah and that baby in his image. He was using people made in the image of God for his own me-first purposes. And then David himself is made in the image of God and he was distorting what he was made for. So then a sign of true repentance is that the confession is God-centered, not self-centered. So, all of that being said, um, listen to these wise words from Sinclair Ferguson. He says, 
So this is considering that we are to remember God's love, his obligating love, and to recognize our sin. He says, dare we say, oh God, obligate yourself to love me with a love that will save me from our guilt. Should, should we dare to say that? He goes on, David did, although he could not have known what he was ultimately asking for. We do know on this side of the cross. David was asking God ultimately to cover God's son with our guilt, to withdraw from Jesus the sense of his father's love, and to provide us with forgiveness and cover us with his son's righteousness in order that we might sense the fullness of his love. He was asking for the cross. In asking to experience God's steadfast love, I'm doing the, thing, the same thing. I'm asking for the cross. How do we know that's, that David was asking for that? He, he didn't know, but he was asking for what was a shadow of the cross to come. How do we know that? Verse 7, David goes on to say, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop was a, was a branch um, that they used uh, in certain ceremonial uh, cleansings to dip the branch into blood and then sprinkle it. So they used it at Passover uh, when the angel of death was going to pass over and kill the firstborn that night. They took the blood of a lamb, a spotless lamb, and dipped the hyssop branch into it and painted the top and sides of the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over. In the law of God, uh, one of the ways that, uh, um, when a leper was cleansed, uh, there had to be a sacrifice, uh, and so they would dip a hyssop branch in the blood and sprinkle it on the leper to signify that he was clean now before God. The same thing uh, was the same ceremony if someone had touched a dead body and had become unclean. And so... David knew that God had provided uh, forgiveness for sinners. He, he knew that there was the sprinkling of the sacrificial blood uh, to save us from God's wrath in the Passover. He knew there was the sprinkling of sacrificial blood for the cleansing from sin. And so we know that all of that, among other things that uh, happened in the sacrificial system, all of that was pointing to Jesus and the cross. And so, that leads us to our last point. In order to be reconciled, I must rest and rely on God's provision. I must ask him to purge me with the blood of Jesus, to wash me with the blood of Jesus. And then, and then once I'm reconciled to him, I can once again enjoy his hug. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice or dance, it means. There's joy on the other side of repentance. Because there is reconciliation with your Father who loves you. Then in verse 9, he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my, impurity, uh, my iniquities. There's no shame on the other side of repentance. Because Jesus, Jesus has taken your shame 
on himself. The father hid his face from his son so that those who are in Christ would never fear that God would hide their face, his face from them. And so, the prayer of repentance is a prayer of pleading for reconciliation with God. And I want to ask, when's the last time you prayed like that? When's the last time you, were, you believed you were enough of a sinner that you had to pray like that? I asked myself the same question. Martin Luther said that uh, the daily existence of the believer is one of repentance. I know I've got things daily to repent of, but the question is whether I do it. And there's good news because I know sitting in the congregation there are folks who um, are so overwhelmed by the sense of your own sin that you think, how, how could I ever go to God with what's in my heart? It is so bad. How could I ever go to God with the things I've done? How could he ever forgive me? You need this psalm. You need to ask God to have mercy on you, not according to your record, not according to your resume, but according to his steadfast love, according to his abundant mercy. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. You can't drain his bank account. So if you're sensitive and weighed down by your sin, you need to hear and remember that God loves you, and he invites you to come and to be clean. But if you're more like me, you're more like a Pharisee who has a hard time thinking of what to repent of, because doggone it, I'm wonderful and people like me. Right? And Jesus says to the Pharisee, you need to recognize your sin. You are the man. You are the man. You're the adulterer. You're the murderer. Look at your heart. And finally, you will know that you are remembering God's love and recognizing your sin and resting in and relying on his provision. You will know that you are enjoying God's hug again. When your prayer turns to a prayer, not only to be reconciled with God, but to be transformed by God. And that's the rest of the psalm. Um, Jesus told the Pharisees, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In our passage we read in Acts 26 this morning, Paul preached a gospel that says, repent, turn to God, and practice deeds in keeping with repentance. Jesus said, repent, believe the good news, and follow me. There's, there's transformation that takes place with those who are reconciled by God. They begin to follow him and obey him. And so, 
repentant prayer pleads for transformation by God, transformation of oneself, transformation of other sinners, transformation of his church. I want to focus mainly on verses 10 to 12, where David cries out, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. That's the prayer, that's the cry of a reconciled heart. That word, uh, create, creating me, it's the same word used in Genesis. <laughs> We're asking the Creator to remake us in His image, specifically the image of Christ. Um, and there's good news. He will answer that prayer because He promised. I, I love, I love Ezekiel 36. Go and read it sometime. But there's, there are a few promises in Ezekiel 36 that come true. They're part of the new covenant. So today when we say, this, Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. When you hear that, hear this promise from Ezekiel 36, because this is the promise of the new covenant. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. He promises you in the gospel a new purity. He goes on to say, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will give you a new passion, a new tenderness toward me and toward others. He goes on to say, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He will put a new power in you to love God and to love others. And then he says, you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. People who are reconciled to God also have a new partnership with him. This is the promise of the new covenant which we get in Jesus. You say, create in me a clean heart, uphold me with a willing spirit, don't cast me away from your presence, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. The only way you can be transformed is if God keeps these promises to clean you, to implant a new passion in you, to put a new power in you by His Spirit, and to partner with you now that you're reconciled to Him. It's the only way that you will live the life that David is praying to live. But not only will you want to see yourself transformed, you want to see other sinners transformed. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. And he's not, he's not saying transgressors and sinners in this, then I'll teach those sinners and transgressors and transgressors what they ought to do, which is typically what we do, isn't it? We plead with God for mercy to forgive us, and then we go to other sinners and go, you better get your act together. I was smart enough to get Jesus. What about you? No, 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 no. The heart of a reconciled person to God says what, what Paul said, Jesus has given me the ministry of reconciliation. So that I implore you, be reconciled to God. 
So you know your heart's been reconciled to God when you begin to have a compassion for other sinners who are like you, and you want them to be reconciled to God. And then finally, a reconciled heart prays for transformation of the church. Those last few verses of Psalm 51 may seem strange. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Where does that come from? Is he saying the opposite of what he just said? I, I, I thought of the right sacrifice was a, a broken, repentant heart. No, what he's asking God to do is to transform God's people into a repentant people. Into a people who depend on the sacrifice that God has provided to reconcile them to God, to him. But it's also got this flavor of Romans 12, verse 1, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So our prayer for Mountain Fellowship should be, Lord, transform us into a repentant people, people who long for and love being reconciled with you and transformed by you, people who long to see others be reconciled with you and transformed by you as well. People, make us a people who are so captivated by Jesus and his sacrifices for us, that we would love to give ourselves as fully forgiven and loved sacrifices for you and others. That's the prayer. And folks, this is a process. Um, it's going to take time for us to heal from the inside out. A couple of months ago, I took a trip to the dermatologist for one thing, and she found another as they're prone to do. She found something worse. So I went for these little benign things on top of my scalp, and she's looking around, oh, what's this? You don't want to hear your doctor say that. So, oh, yeah, it looks like you've got um, basal cell carcinoma. So we're going to have to cut that out. Great. Make an appointment and go through, and Christine was there to hold my hand, because I'm a baby. And um, Christine said, it's a good thing you didn't see what she cut out of your head. <laughs> and of course, I needed this like I needed another hole in my head. <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, so for two months, I've had this hole in my head, and she said, now I've got to heal from the inside out. And so, since then, uh, I, I spent, I don't know how many weeks, six weeks or so, every day cleansing it, cleaning it carefully, applying this antibiotic ointment, putting the Band-Aid on my head. And so I go out looking like a nut with a Band-Aid on my head. Uh, every day I had to do that. And uh, I look at it and think, that doesn't look great. But I went back to the the doctor, and the nurse 
took the band-aid off and she goes, oh, that looks great. I'm like, really? There's a hole in my head. No, that looks great. Go back a few weeks later. Oh, yeah, looking good, looking good. Everything's as it should be. Now, I tell you that because this whole matter of repentance and transformation is a, is a daily thing. It's a slow thing. It's, it's paying daily attention to God, to my heart, uh, to cleansing repentance, to prayers of cleansing repentance. Uh, it's daily applying the gospel of God's reconciling grace as a healing ointment. Friends, as you live this lifestyle of repentance, as Luther called it, it may not look pretty to you, but your great physician is looking at you and saying, that looks great. You're healing. Keep it up. Just keep praying the cleansing prayer. Just keep applying the gospel. You're healing. Father, thank you for the promise that if we would repent, you will transform. Thank you for this table, which is the ointment of the good news of, of Jesus. Apply it to our hearts today, we ask, so that we may heal from the inside out and so that we may be wounded healers to our neighbors and the nations and the next generation. And would you take uh, this bread and this cup, set them aside from their normal everyday use and let them be to us reminders of the sacrificial love and grace of Jesus for us, your people. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.